This week on Writers, Inc. I've always said, you know, I don't know what I would do because I probably wouldn't be good at anything else. And then I thought, you know what, maybe I'd be good as a lawyer, you know, as a behind the scenes person, because I do like digging through paper and boxes and, and figuring things out. And whenever I read a really good true crime book, you know, it's quick, it's so quickly evident how much work went into it. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Zach, what's new, man? Ah, <sighs> a whole bunch of nothing. I think I gave the answer last time you asked. I'm so boring. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a boring person, I guess. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Nothing, nothing is new. So well, I've been dealing with, I've been dealing with tendonitis. That's been really fun. So you know, I haven't, uh, but I've been good. I haven't played video games in like a week. So which I know makes me sound like an eight year old, but uh, <laughs> you know, but that's like one of the big components of like what really affects it. So um, you know, but uh, other than that, yeah. So I don't know. what about you, JD? Um, I was going to say you could talk about the creepy dolls on the couch behind you if you wanted to, but I guess nobody else can see those other than no, us, so. no one can see them. It's just <laughs> it's like three video game characters, and then the one that you're looking at is I just have Michael Myers from Halloween, which is like the one thing I bought in Salem. I just see creepy dolls from here, and I just it, it makes me very worried about what happens when we get done here and you're in that room all by yourself again. I just like how you say dolls, dolls. You're like dolls, <laughs> dolls. I'm like what the hell is a doll? It took me a second. I was like. What behind me could be a Dow? It's a but, weird, weird New England speak. Yeah, just a little. Wow, we are. This is probably the best start to any episode we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> this is strong, guys. Right out of the gate. I know it's my fault. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, I'm, I'm, it's my, talking about my tendonitis. We're talking about my Dow's. Like, it's. I'm sorry. I know JD's know. got some news for us. Though. He can I know kick he it up does. <laughs> yes, I, I think I, I've kind of done the impossible here. So, you know, every time I write a book, I always you know, box it up and I, I write a quick note and I send a copy over to Stephen King. And I, I don't, you know, expect anything to ever really come of that. Um, but every once in a while, I get an email back or, or, or something nice. Um, to put this in perspective, when I sent them the callers game, um, I, I got a phone call from Amazon because I, I sent it directly from Amazon. Um, the Amazon driver said, I had to leave this at your gate because the gate's closed and it's raining. So I'm thinking, yeah, I get this this phone call and I'm thinking, oh, my book is sitting outside Stephen King's house. It's pouring rain. And like just the idea of a book stuck out in the rain kind of made me sad. So I shot him a quick email and, and, and Steve actually went outside in the rain, got the book and, <laughs> and came back in and, and told me that it, that it, it was OK and it, it was dry, um, which just kind of tells you just, you know, how awesome of a, of a guy he is. Um, but I, I sent them the, the latest, you know, the, the noise that I wrote with um, James Patterson. Um, 
and I didn't expect anything to really come of this. He, he sent me an, an email back, um, which was really cool, just telling me that he put it in his bag. He was going to read it on the, the trip back from Florida to, to Bangor. Um, and, you know, so then I just kind of sat on pins and needles for like three weeks or two weeks or something, and I didn't hear anything from him. And then I, I got another message um, saying that he actually liked it, and he went into a lot of the detail and stuff on it, you know, which is very cool to hear from somebody like Stephen King. But again, you know, like, you know, he's publicly said that he, he does not like James Patterson. Um, so I didn't expect anything to actually come of this. I never actually talked about it. I, I didn't share it with my agent. I didn't tell anybody, you know, about these particular emails because I didn't think it would go anywhere. Um, and, and then I got a, a message from a, um, my, my agent. Um, apparently King went out on uh, Apple um, and actually publicly, you know, called the book scary. Like he blurbed the book. So I somehow managed to get Stephen King to blurb a James Patterson novel. Um, so for those of you who haven't bought it yet, it's called The Noise and it comes out August uh, 16th. Well, awesome. that's just made up for a pretty terrible opening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's you just go to JD every time, you know. <laughs> of course, I don't think he's going to have a uh, you know news like that every time. But yeah, congrats, dude. That's that's amazing. So thanks, man. JD, you don't have to tell us exactly what was said, but what was Patterson's general reaction to seeing that? <laughs> he was actually pretty funny. He's got a great sense of humor. He's like, oh, I know what he's going to do. He's going to get on Twitter and he's going to say that Barker guy wrote one hell of a book. <laughs> 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 and like, honestly, that's kind of what I was expecting to happen. Like something, you know, left field like that. But um, no, he just, he, King just came, came out. He listed a couple thrillers that are coming out over the next few weeks that he, that he really enjoyed. And he gave it a, a nice, you know, concise little blurb. Um, awesome. I couldn't ask for anything more. I mean, I didn't expect it to happen and it's just very cool that it did. Well, congrats, and I'm 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 reading the book and enjoying it. So, uh, you know, of course that that doesn't mean as much as Stephen King saying it, but you know. <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll put your blurb right underneath his. That that'd be great. <laughs> I'll write you a check right now. Hold on. <laughs> well, that's that's super cool. Um, any other publishing news or industry news that uh, you guys have seen floating around? Not on my end. I, I, I've been looking. I, it's been kind of quiet. Um, you know, we've had a couple conferences that have canceled over the, the last few weeks. Um, we talked about BoucherCon. Um, Thriller Fest is still on. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens as, as far as that goes. I, I think what, what is different this go around, um, you know, last time the publishers were actually pretty scared, you know, when COVID came out. Like if you think back to March of last year, you know, I, I had some publishers that were holding back royalties, um, you know, other publishers that were saying, you know, they, they didn't know what was going to happen with book sales. People aren't working. Nobody can afford to buy books, you know sales are going to fall. Um, you know, there's a lot of panic happening. Um, now we've got a year now in between and we've actually seen when people are trapped in their houses, they read a lot of books. Um, you know, whether it's in ebooks in particular, you know, because it's, it's touchless, you know, people were able to buy ebooks without any problem. They couldn't walk to their bookstore and, and pick up a physical copy anymore, but ebook downloads went through the roof. Um, so I think even though we were seeing this virus kind of, you know, raise its ugly head one more time, um, the publishing industry at least understands that that, you know, isn't going to affect this, this particular business. Um, so we'll, we'll see where it goes. Unfortunately, it is impacting the, the conferences, the in-person in type stuff, but um, we'll, we'll all come out of this. Yeah, I mean, I could see, um, you know, why the publishers definitely got nervous, especially because they depend on physical books so much and on bookstores. And um, but, you know, the <clears throat> I know for I've had my best year I've had and I know several other authors who are the same way. Like, so it's just kind of, a, you know, I think it's just proof like a lot of people were, were reading for sure <laughs> during that time. So, yeah, Jay. Yeah, I want to throw in a, a quick related update. Um, I've been pretty much underwhelmed by Kindle Vela. It's still early. Uh, early indications <laughs> are 
I I think one of the problems that uh, with Vela is that Amazon gave all new readers like 200 credits just for signing up, which means <laughs> the authors aren't getting paid for unlocked episodes yet. Uh, and, and so there are, um, it reminds me of the musicians holding up like their Spotify royalty checks, <laughs> you know, like a billion plays for like $3 and 33 cents. It's like, it's kind of along those lines. So again, it's still early. I'm not passing judgment. Um, I, I think there are still, I think there are people who are doing well on it, but me personally, I'm not sure how much more I'm going to invest in Vela episodes at this point, unless I see the needle move. But, uh, as of now, there's not much movement. Have you seen any specifics as far as who's actually using Vela from a reader standpoint? Like, is it younger people or older people or any any demographic type info? Unfortunately, uh, that's not something Amazon would uh, willingly give up. I mean, uh, you have a Vela dashboard that's inside of your KDP dashboard, and you can see read through, which is really nice. Like, you can see how many people have um, uh, read it and how many people have liked it or upped it or whatever it is. Um, so you can see that, but but that's just an aggregate. So you don't really have any idea who those people are. I mean, the only similarity I can think of is, um, you know, you've got Creepypasta, Wattpad, things like that. And that seems to be a lot younger of a, a crowd. So I'm just curious if that same younger crowd is coming over to Vela um, or not. Yeah, and I, th I think part of I mean, that's a great point. I think that's kind of what Amazon was going for here. But also, um, you know, the, the people I've talked to, and, and I didn't jump in on it, but a lot of the people I've talked to who did, um, like either – don't even want to really tell their existing readers about it because they don't know how to explain it to them because it's not just going and buying their new ebook or like when they did tell them about it, the readers were like well i don't want to buy these tokens and read it like this and and all this oh jay you have anything on that because you're obviously going through it yeah i think that's the catch-22 here uh and, and okay. i'm i'm not i'm not extrapolating my experience out to everyone's but i think the type of authors who have been using KDP have been selling books to readers who like books. Uh, therefore, if you take your existing audience of readers who like books and you say, here's this Vela thing, they're like, I don't know what that is. I'm not interested. I want the book. So I think where we might really start to see Vela take hold is a brand new audience yeah. and authors who were not previously on Kindle, maybe they were on Radish or they were on Wattpad and now they're gonna open up a KDP account just for Vela. I think that's where we're gonna see the, the movement because those are the readers that have been conditioned to read in that format. Right on. Well, it's gonna be interesting to see where it goes for sure, so. I'll tell you where it's not going. Vela's not going over to Kobo Writing Life, our sponsor. <laughs> that was the best transition ever. That was good, wasn't it? That yeah. was awesome. Because <laughs> uh, Kobo Writing Life empowers you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. Tara and her team over there are going to help you set up your books in all countries, take advantage of monthly promotional opportunities, and you don't have to be exclusive. If you want to get in on the Kobo Writing Life, head on over to KoboWritingLife.com. And also a quick reminder that we love all of our patrons. And if you would like to ask us questions on the monthly Q&A episode, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash writers inc podcast and become a patron of the show. So that takes us to the guest this week. Who is coming up, JD? Uh, we've got Richard Chismar back for his second appearance. He's got a new book out called Chasing the Boogeyman. It releases August 17th. Um, very similar vibe to I'll Be Gone in the Dark um, by Michelle McNamara, if you've read that one. Um, but he's got a very unique twist, um, and I, I don't want to give it away. I'd rather he, he does it. So here he is, Richard Chismar. 
All right, man. Can I call you the rubber band man during the whole interview? <laughs> Only if you want to give me nightmares. <laughs> to tell us a little bit more about rubber band man. Um, you know, it's funny because I, I I'd completely forgotten about rubber band man until I, until I was working on the book and then it came back to me. I was trying to think of all the old stories from, from back in the, uh, the Edgewood youth days and, um, the stuff that we used to scare each other with. And I'm, and I, and rubber band man came back and, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, it came back, the imagery came back, the, the stories. And, and what, what's interesting is that is, is that actually came from, and I think I mentioned it in the book, it came from my older sisters first. They told me about it. And then of course I went and blabbed and told all my friends. And then we heard from other people, um, but yeah, rubber band. There was one. There were these. There were these fenced-in basketball courts by an elementary school, and there's a playground off in the distance, and that's that's where uh, he was reputed to have been seen the first time. So we played we played basketball, pick up pick up ball, and and those courts quite often. And every time, I, I still it, it all came back to me. I still remember playing basketball, and you know, in between games, looking, searching the wood line and the playground to see if he was out there, especially at dusk. Man, I think that's such a Gen X thing. Like, if you think back, all those, it was all word of mouth, right? Like, so-and-so's yes. brother's cousin saw this thing, and then all of a sudden, it's all over the school, and people are passing it in notes, and it just becomes like urban legend. Yeah, no cell phones to take pictures or video, um, you know. Uh, we used to make our little Super 8 uh, movies every once in a while out in the neighborhood or in my friend's pool. And uh, we always wished we had the camera with us and we caught something like, you know, Bigfoot or rubber band and something like that. But you're right. It was all word of mouth. And that made it even better. Yeah. Because uh, because then, you know, you could be bullshitting with your friends. And then a week later, you hear that same story. But it was gospel by then. It really happened. It wasn't. It wasn't Chismar just trying to scare, you know, Jimmy and Brian from up the street. Yeah, you couldn't prove it or disprove it either way. Yep. Yep, exactly. <laughs> well, man, you have one of the most unique and innovative new books coming out that I've read in a long time. I'm so excited to talk to you about it. Thank uh, you. It's going to include things like The Phantom Fondler and The Boogeyman. Uh, why don't you tell the listeners just uh, um, about the book, the premise, and then we can kind of dig in a little bit. Sure. Um I always have a, I always have a, a difficult time kind of encapsulating it in a few words, so I always end up kind of babbling. But it, the bottom line is, you know, I grew up in this little working class town in Maryland, and um, you know, and I talk about this in the book. You know, it, it's uh, it was very much kind of a, a wonder years type growing up. I mean, there were you know there were definitely the the wrong side of town, and there was darkness within the neighborhood even before all this. You know, it's just human. You know, human nature. But it was a pretty uh, cool place to grow up with, you know. I mean, uh, it, you know, wiffle ball and marbles and trading baseball cards and comic books and the whole thing, you know, having tree forts. It was really this kind of idyllic um, place to grow up. And, uh, you know, we we uh, we bordered a, a military base. So there was always kind of an X-File vibe there that, you know, bad stuff could could happen and was happening behind closed doors. So it's just an interesting place to grow up, an interesting time, much more innocent time in a lot of ways. Um, and I've always kind of wanted to go back and revisit that in a book. So I, I there was after I graduated from college, I, I had a about a 10 month uh, stint, I think, where I moved back home because I was uh, we were, I was going to get married. My, my wife was in college still. 
uh, my fiance rather. And um, it was just a very interesting time. And it's always stuck with me how, you know, I, I had graduated from college. I was on kind of the, you know, cusp of adulthood or I already was an adult. Um, but I moved back home into the bedroom that I grew up in, in this town that had such fond memories. And it was a really interesting dynamic. You know, all of a sudden, after being on my own for a while, I was back home in that environment, having dinner with my parents, um, you know, seeing friends throughout town. And I was working on Cemetery Dance. I had started the magazine. So it was just a very interesting time in my life. Um, and it was ripe to kind of, you know, I was feeling stuff, you know, it was, it was a, I was feeling stuff extra. Let's put it that way, you know, back in my room and looking at that window. Um, and there was, there was some bad stuff going around town. There was a guy called the Phantom Fondler who was breaking into, he was sneaking into two homes in, in the neighborhood I grew up in and the surrounding neighborhoods. And while these women were sleeping, he was touching their hair or caressing their face or their legs and then he was taken off. You know, when they woke up, they would see him and he would take off. Never been, he was never caught. He did this to dozens of women. So people were locking their doors and people were locking their windows and people were getting spotlights, you know, for their yards and doubling up on their locks. And it was it felt very much like I was in a movie. And I remember always thinking during that time period, is this guy going to escalate his activities to something even worse? you know, violence or sexual assault and all of that stuff. And, and, uh, but it was, it was just a very interesting time. And I wanted to capture that in a book. I kind of wanted to tell my version of the Edgewood campfire story. And, um, yeah, so that's a long rambling way to, to say that, uh, it, it was just, you know, a really cool time in my life that I wanted to kind of put down on paper and try to capture those feelings again. It's a fabulous blend of fiction, true crime and memoir. And, and I, and I, you know, those don't all seem to go together and yet you made it work. Uh, and, and, and I know this is the question you're going to get over and over again doing the press for this on, on a slider percentage, how much of this is your life and how much of it is fiction? Um, you know, I'm going to have to come up with a good answer for that yeah. because it's a great <laughs> question and I'm going to be asked it a lot. Um, you know, th kind of the easy take on that is, you know, that it's, it's, you know, if we're not talking about the girls who were murdered, it's 90% true. You know, I embellished some stuff. Um, you know, I took some liberties with the geography. You know, if it, it might have really been Tupelo Road and, um, you know, Bayberry Road and Juniper Road. They're all roads. But when I was writing about them in the same sentence or paragraph, I might have switched one to a lane or an avenue, that kind of thing, just to make it sound not sound so repetitive. Um all the stuff in the beginning, all the uh, the memoir stuff kind of is true. Um, as crazy as some of those stories are, they're all true. Um, the, the, those are my real friends I grew up with. I didn't change their names. I had to get, you know, Simon Schuster was very nervous about all that. And I had to get a lot of signed letters from, from people saying it was okay that I talked about them. Um, it, uh, you know, the house, the, the picture of my house in the book is, is really the house I grew up in. So, yeah, it, 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 it that's that's why writing this book, it almost felt like an indulgence, uh, a self-indulgence at time, because I had a lot of fun. And here I am kind of a nobody writing uh, this this memoir section about himself. But I really wanted to kind of give people an idea of what life was like and what the place was like um, through my out through my eyes. 
And um, that's why I, I kind of, you know, it's a long section. And, and my editor, uh, Ed Schlesinger, who's, who's been wonderful, he, you know, he expressed some current concerns. It might be a little too long there. You know, we don't want people, you know, it's so, the book reads so fast. You know, uh, we might want to, you know, eliminate part of this front section. And the pro- that's really the only thing I argued about. I was like, no, we got to leave all that stuff in. You know, I want to set the table first and, and, and then bring them the, you know, the appetizers and the main dish and, and all that stuff. But, um, but yeah, it's most of it's uh, true. Then you get to the murders and, and that's just all my, you know, twisted imagination. <laughs> As we talked last time, you and I had similar upbringings at a similar time. And I got to tell you, man, two scenes almost brought me to tears uh, because I could so relate and it was so Bradbarian. I don't know if that's a term. I'm just going to make it up, but yeah, you know, you, like help, you helping your dad with the car and yeah. your, in your description of October, those, those yeah. two sections in particular, I was getting choked up. I mean, I, I could so relate. Can, can you describe the it. working with your dad on the car? I love it. Um, I just know God bless him. I, and that's another thing. That's another thing. It, you know, it, it was, a gift to me. My, my mom's been gone since 2001. My father's been gone since 2007. Um, but during the months that I wrote this book, they were back. Um, and that was a really cool thing. You know, um, they, they kind of, you know, popped up in my dreams a little bit more than often. And, and they were right there on the paper waiting for me every day. So that was neat. Um, yeah, my dad, you know, I try to describe him in there, the quiet, steady guy, um, help out, do anything for anybody, and, and a great dad. Um, you know, very selfless, um, and very different from me. And the car scene is kind of just a perfect, uh, you know, symbolic moment of that because the, the way I described it is true. And and, and I'm just like tapping my feet right now as I'm thinking about it because it's, that's me. It's essentially I'm going to help dad today. He needs my help in the car. Up goes the hood and. You know, it started out with all good intentions, but within moments, you know, I'm screwing up something. I'm spinning around in circles. I'm blowing grass, a blades of grass between my mouth, just irritating the shit out of them. And, <laughs> you know, uh, within, you know, a short time after that, there's eye contact and there's just the, you know, Rich, go, go. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, there, it, it's uh, he was very mechanically inclined, could could fix anything and love tinkering and you know uh i uh like like i described the garage as kind of the magic you know workshop there and that's kind of what it always was for not for not just for me but for my friends too um but i you know i i i was the guy who couldn't program his vcr and still doesn't know you know like we're doing this on on my phone because i couldn't get my laptop rolling and you know i'm sure my son if he was home could fix that in 20 seconds so yeah and, and i'm glad those scenes got to you it's it's interesting and one of the things that's been re- really rewarding is different people have keyed in on different scenes you know someone said you know for him it was the bicycle jump ramp the jumping ramp scene where you know we saw the, the girl's bra strap but just he he, he just said for, for him that just put him there it brought everything back for him and it made the rest of the story work so well for him and and you know other people said it was the rubber band man or walking up the gravel driveway at the myers house it's just these little things and um but yeah they're all they all came from from memory and uh the stuff with my dad and and um you know even seeing the christmas lights when we had just moved there you know shortly before that and him him taking my hand and walking up the hill that all that it all happened and and you know so yeah to the best of my memory i just kind of put it down there and 
and shared, you know, and it's interesting because I, that that's, you know, usually I'm not the main character. So usually you can sneak in some memories of your own through other characters eyes, but this time it was me. So I was kind of just laying it out there and, and that was a little scary, but also, like I said, a lot of fun to do. Let's stick with the metaphor and let's pop the hood for a second and climb, climb underneath here and tell me as, as an experienced author who's been in this business a long time, your approach for this book had to have been different than anything else you've written. So did you have a framework? Did you have something in mind? Did you kind of just let it fly? Like what, what was your preparation like? Um, a little bit of everything, uh, a little bit of all that. Um, you talk about open, uh, you know, lifting the hood and going underneath, you know, I'll admit and, and have already that, you know, a lot of this book was kind of like a happy accident. You know, I, I'm a huge true crime fan. Um, and I, and, and believe it or not, I like doing research. Um, you know, I, I, if, if I wasn't a writer, I've always said, you know, I don't know what I would do cause I probably wouldn't be good at anything else. And then I thought, you know what, maybe I'd be good as a lawyer, you know, as a behind the scenes person. Cause I do like digging through paper and boxes and, and figuring things out. And whenever I read a really good true crime book, you know, it's quick, it's so quickly evident how much work went into it. Um, and it's always been in the back of my head that, you know, I, I, maybe I'd like to do that one day. And then I thought, Rich, as much as you like all that research, no, you know, that, that you know, think about what they did. And uh, I'm like, you know, th that might be just words instead of uh, reality. Um, so I it, when I started the book, I had the idea that it that it would kind of straddle the line between true crime, but never really how much um, I didn't think about the photographs and all that. Um, I didn't think about kind of structuring it like a true, a lot of true crime books are as far as, you know, starting with the town, establishing place and time and then going into the specifics. Um, I, I kind of just wanted to tell a, an old fashioned campfire story. You know, like I said, you know, in my hometown, I, I wasn't even going to be a main character. But what became really apparent quickly was that if I was if I was kind of, you know, offering up everything that I was in the beginning of the book, there, there really was no use pretending like it wasn't me. And then the idea of it, it kind of came to me that, you know, I was working on cemetery dance then. And it, it's kind of it's kind of a cool idea to kind of give people an insight into it, it, exactly how, you know, grassroots it all was and, and how un unknown the future was. I really had no idea whether there would be a second or third issue of the magazine. Um, and here we are 30 something years later. I had no idea if, you know, my writing would ever go anywhere. Um, it was just kind of, you know, I was just fortunate because I was pretty young. Um, I didn't care about money, which was great because I didn't make any for a long time. And, um, you know, I was engaged to, to a great young woman and, and who, who had a future ahead of her as a physical therapist and, and, you know, and a, and a close family. And, and it was just kind of an ideal situation for me where I could really give this a shot. But uh, so, yeah, you know, when I started writing the book, it was going to be a campfire story. It was going to be about the, the boogeyman of Edgewood, um, also known as the Phantom Fondler gone bad. And then I just started thinking, wait a minute, you know, there's 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 a true crime story here. There's a, a coming of age story here. And there's me at the center of all of it. And if I kind of connect some dots, I, I think I could make an interesting enough story that, that people might pick it up. And it was probably after the memoir section, after I got through that first, you know, ninth of the book or whatever, that I sat down and started outlining a few things because I realized, you know, I better have a little bit of a roadmap where I'm going. 
Um, but that was it. You know, it was just kind of fell in my lap. And, and I'd like to say I had this great idea to kind of do this genre bending book, but it, it was a gift and, and uh, I'll just happily accept it. Yeah. Yeah. Get a roll with it. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, I read it knowing nothing. So I got an advanced copy. I didn't talk to you. I intentionally didn't read anything about it online. And so when I started getting into the photographs, I had to really pause and I, and I was like, wait a minute, like, is, are these real or did Rich pull these Polaroids out from somewhere? And then when I got to the, the, your uh, author's note at the end and it all kind of clicked and I was like, that is a really cool idea. Can you talk about the photographs? Yeah, that once, once I I realized that I was going to kind of do this and, and and try to present it as a, as a, as a true crime book. um, That's where I, I, you know, I just drew on my own experience when I, when I read a true crime book that really affects me, the photographs are always kind of the kicker. Um, You know, I find myself turning to the photograph section and matching up faces and locations. um, And it always brings an added weight to the story and an added sense of this really happened, Rich. Um, And, and I can stare at those photos for a long time, you know, just sometimes it's just simply this, you know, this shed that's, kind of decaying and it's overgrown grass around it and essentially you know because it was a crime scene because it's where a body was found or it's where a weapon was found you know and because of the kind of person i am i can stare at that photo and my imagination kind of just goes wild and that's what i wanted to do is i wanted to add you know a sense of poignancy and a sense of reality to the story um so yeah the photographs became very important and I brought in friends. I brought in, you know, daughters of friends to be the victims, um, telling them all ahead of time, you know, if you want to do this, you got to know you were murdered, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, we brought in some actors and, um, you know, my son and I took a bunch of the photos. Then uh, the, the guys from Simpatico uh, Media, who are a, a local production company, they took a bunch of photos. And, and uh, yeah, I mean. I hate to say it, but we had a blast with the photos because it, it, I, I felt like it really helps the story. And like you said, you, you get to the photos and you're like, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> and people have said, you know, people, if you go on Goodreads, which you should probably never do, and, but people have said, you know, don't go on there. And I'm like, well, I can't help it. You know, uh, I want to know what these people think because the book's not out yet and they're getting an early peek. But a lot of people said, you know, those photos made them go back and Google. They're like, wait a minute, I thought this was a novel. And they're Googling victims' names and trying to find out. And yeah, so it was interesting. And, and one of my initial hopes and really big ideas for this is I kind of wanted to Blair Witch chasing the boogeyman. I wanted people to put the book down and not know whether it was real or not. Um, then, you know, the powers that be kind of got involved and, and I understand why, but you know, the folks at Simon and Schuster, my editor, my agent, uh, and that's how it ends up having the disclaimer in the front of the book saying, this is a work of fiction. It says a novel on the cover. And then there's the afterward, which is kind of like pulling the curtain back um, and, and telling secrets about it. Um, but uh, you know, they were worried about getting sued. And even my son kept saying, dad, what if you like drive down the real estate values in Edgewood? Because everyone thinks it's like murder town. And I'm like, Billy, it's not going to happen. Look at the Blair Witch. And so, yeah, pretty cool. It, uh, if you could have that kind of power though, from a novel, right? Well, <laughs> that's what I said is I said, look, I said, you know, with the internet now, I, I said, I really feel like, you know, we could go full tilt on this and try to, you know, straddle that line and just leave it open. You know, it's, it's going to say on the copyright page, this is a work of fiction, 
but that's hidden, you know, on the copyright page. A lot of people just flip by that and don't look at it. And I'm like, the idea that these people afterwards, I said, we could have a website designed. We could throw out some stuff on the internet so that it would come up when people, you know, Googled. Um, I had an idea of doing, I, I don't know if you remember with the Blair Witch, but they did a behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, origin story of the yep. Blair Witch, which was awesome which was great. And I, I had an idea to have my son do a documentary, like a 45 minute documentary about this. And we could bring in some of the actors who played the cops and do, you know, grainy interview footage with them. And we could have, you know, more pictures of the victims flashing on the screen and they could interview me, all that. And I was like, you throw the documentary out there, you never know if it catches fire. And, and so we had, you know, I kind of had the, that is one area where, you know, I kind of had some big ideas and they, they, uh, you know, they kind of got squashed back to reality. I talked to Simon Schuster's lawyers a couple times on the phone conferences. They just want, and you know, they're just protecting my, you know, me and themselves. And so it made sense, but we still might do the documentary. We still might throw that out there just as kind of a marketing tool and have some fun with it. Hey, do you, you know, Ed Sanchez is in your neighbor. I mean, not in your neighborhood, but he's a Maryland guy, right? Is he still Maryland? I think so. Last time I talked to him, he was living in Maryland. He'd be a great guy to tap for that. Right. Yeah, I, I would actually, I would just love to sit down and have lunch with that guy. That, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I knew he was originally Merrill. I didn't know if he was still out here, still down, you know, here. Yeah, I'll, have to, I'll poke around. I'll talk to you later about, about him. There might, yeah, yeah might please be do. There. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another guy uh, that uh, was involved in this, I think, you talked about involving friends and stuff. James Renner. Is he a buddy of yours? Yeah. Um, you know what? He is a long-distance friend of mine, and we met just through – you know, uh, you know, writer, publisher type things. And, and I, I've, I really loved his true crime, you know, books, um, the, particularly the one about uh, what is it? Maury, Maury, I cannot remember her last name, but the girl who disappeared up in New England. I mean, that, that, that yeah, I thought about that book for a long time after I, after I flipped the last page. Um, but yeah, he, he's a true crime, you know, writer who I really respect and admire. And he's one of those guys who, 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 you know, does such thorough research. And, and, uh, I, I kind of came to him and I said, Hey, guess what? I got my own true crime book. I'm just going to make it all up so I can be lazy and I don't have to do any research. I'll just pretend I did. And I said, but what if you did the introduction or like a forward to the book? Um, and it would really add, you know, authenticity again. And, and he loved the idea and jumped on and, and I, I really, you know, owe him for that. And, uh, yeah, like I said, it was all kind of, you know, the photos, James's um, participation and, uh, you know, even like, you know, a couple of the footnotes in, in the introduction type thing, you know, that it just was there to add authenticity and, and make people kind of forget that they were reading a made up story. Um, and it's worked, uh, you know, so far. Like I said, a lot of people have said I've Googled and every time they say that, I'm just like, yes. <laughs> Yeah, Renner's a great guy. I interviewed him a long time ago for a blog post because he's a Cleveland guy, and he did mm-hmm. so much with the abductions on the, on the west side of Cleveland uh, a few years ago, and, and he's a super pro. Like, he knows his stuff. Oh. So, I mean, that that forward just add, it, it kind of frames the experience for Like, it framed the experience for me. I'm like, okay, James is buying into this, so I'm going to read it right. like a true crime book. You know, it was, right. it was wonderful. Yeah, no, it was... Uh... It was kind of neat. I felt like I kind of felt like we were in cahoots to, yeah. you know, pull the pull the wool over some people's eyes and and uh, in a good way, yeah. you know, and yeah. you know, it would, and that's the thing. It never felt like I, I don't want to trick you. I just want to take you for this ride and uh, see how far it can, you know, it can go. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I initially 
was bummed to include that afterward, but now after reading people's reactions and it's kind of like, kind of like you said, you know, then you get to the afterward and you read it and you're like, you know, as long as it's someone who enjoyed the book, you know, you kind of can't help but tilt your head and say, that's a, that's a cool way to tell a story. And that's what I was hoping for. So I'll give all credit to my, to my editor and agent for that. Nice. Nice. Well, I got one more question for you. This is sort of sure. a, an open-ended one. Uh, you know, I'm fascinated by memory and nostalgia, um, just the whole concept of it. And, and from what I understand and what I've read and, and talking to other writers, that it seems like every time you revisit a memory, you change it. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I, I'm wondering if the process of writing this book, do you think that has fundamentally changed your childhood memories? Um, that's a really good question. It's, uh, you know, it, what's weird is because I'm a writer and because, and I think because I, I knew I wanted to be a writer when I, from a pretty young age, it's almost like I fought against that changing of, you know, um, it's, it's almost like, I feel like, Oh no, it was my responsibility to chronicle this stuff for us. And, um, even that, that really is kind of a minor scene in the book where my, where my best friend growing up, Jimmy Cavanaugh comes back and, and Jimmy's a real person. Um, and he comes back for this make-believe wedding. And so he's in town and, and we're sitting across the street from the Myers house. We, we pull in there and he looks at it and he's like, Oh, I almost forgot about that. And it, it kind of breaks my heart because here's a guy who, you know, we walked that driveway in our youth thousands of times. And it was, it's such a huge part of, of my memories and my heart that the idea that my best buddy, that it could slip away from him made me sad. Um, and that, that was only partially true. I don't even think, you know, that part of it, you know, you know, I don't think Jimmy ever, you know, forgot it or whatever, but I was just trying to prove that point. But, uh, to, you know, for a rambling answer to your, to your question. Um, it always felt very important to me that, that they didn't change, that they were what they were. And um, I'm always the, the obnoxious one who, you know, when, when, cause I'm still tight with all these guys, you know, Brian and Jimmy and Bobby and Kenny and Dave and Jeff and all these guys, you know, we still see each other from time to time and, and communicate often. But when the, old, when the stories come up, I'm always the one going, you know, I'll laugh at something. And I'll say, "Only, only it was four times we did that, not three or something." You know, some little detail. And they're like, "You would know." So, yeah. No, it, it, it always they all. You know, here's the, here's here's what it comes down to for me. They felt like they were too sacred to change, whether it was subconsciously or conscious. You know, um, because we all do that. You know, the sports story, you know, or the fish story. The fish it gains three inches every time you tell the story, or you know, we were out shooting guns and, you know, it always, it becomes that much more dangerous and reckless every time you tell that story. But these stories that, you know, my kids started hearing from us from the time they were old enough to hear about them, you know, but actually probably way too young to hear about them, actually. Um, you know, it always was really important to me that they stayed honest and that they stayed pure and uh, because they were, you know, they were so important. So, Yeah. I'm probably the weirdo. Everybody else probably changes and embellishes. And I'm like, no, no, we got to stick with, you know, and I personally, I feel like, Hey, our stories were, were, and I left so many out. So, you know, I've got, I've still got stories to tell about that. I always felt like, you know what? And my kids have said this and their friends they are like, you have the best stories. We don't have stories like this. And I'm like, it's because you grew up in a different place and time. You know, you didn't just disappear from the house and come home in time for dinner and that, you know, and, and your parents didn't worry about you and wonder where you were you know, it's a different, it's a different world now. So JD, uh, Richard kind of, uh, 
you kind of gave up the spoiler a little bit. So you want to talk about the sort of the innovative approach to this book that he that he took? Yeah. So he sent me a, a real like a, just a bound copy of this, you know, pretty early on. So I, I did not know that this was a work of fiction as, as I was reading it. I got all the way through in the end and I was like, holy crap, Rich solved a murder. That's cool. Um, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, when you go through this book, I mean, it, it looks it feels everything about it feels just like a, a true crime novel, you know, right down to the photographs. Like he, he faked everything in there and it made it look identical to a true, true crime novel, which which is awesome. I can see a lot of bookstore employees, though, get and a little, you know, trying to figure out where exactly they're supposed to put it. Um, so I am glad that the publisher is doing a couple of things to at least make that apparent. Um, but yeah, he may have invented a new genre here. I, I mean, you read it too. I mean, what are your takes on it? Yeah, it, to me, it was, it was, it felt like a memoir at times. It felt like a horror novel at times. It felt like true crime at, at, at certain times. And I, one of the really compelling things about this book for me uh, was you know, I, I know like I was going to have the opportunity to ask Richard questions, but the readers are not. And, and so I kept, as I'm reading, I'm thinking like, did this really happen? Is this something he made up or is this something like he didn't? And, and that was propelling me through the book. So I don't know. I don't necessarily think that's something Richard mapped out when he had the idea, but like a consequence of that format is, is the reader just constantly being engaged and constantly asking that question, like, did this really happen? And I think that's a powerful way to get people to move through a book. Uh, let me ask you guys, cause I haven't, I haven't read it and it sounds like super compelling um, and sounds really awesome. Uh, but I'm like, do you guys think that like from what both of you guys are saying, uh, JD, you especially like you thought it was real. Like, so do you, and I know it's Richard sound like that's what he wanted to go for until the publisher stood in. So like, oh, JD, do you think they, I mean, I know you mentioned that you think it's good some of the stuff they did, but do you think they did too much to take away from that or? I, I haven't seen the final book yet, so I, I know they're right. You know, they've got a novel written up on the, the cover, um, things things like that. Um, I, I'm pretty sure, if, if I understand this correctly, the way this came about, Richard wrote a portion, portions of this a while, you know, like a long time ago, back when he was younger. Um, and I don't know if that meant he wrote a memoir back when he was younger and then decided to turn it into a true crime, crime novel. Um, I'm not quite sure how, how that came to play. Um you know, so we'll see. I mean, I've got a feeling that, I mean, knowing Richard, he'll play the long game on this. Like, he, you know, there, there'll maybe be a documentary type thing. You know, I could I could see him, you know, like he had mentioned, creating websites. Um, you know, it, it's pretty easy to take something like that and kind of turn, you know, urban legend into something that people believe is actually real. Um, and, and Jay touched on this, too, in, in you know, R Richard's own mind. You know, like he's, he's twisting memories around. Um, you know, if you've ever studied, um, you know, like... Uh, you know, like hypnosis and regression and things like that. Like, you know, one of the reasons they stopped using that in certain cases is because therapists were able to implant memories in, in the people that they were hypnotizing. Like, this is very similar. Like, at, at some, you know, level, you know, Richard may actually believe he solved a crime. Like, some of these memories may actually start getting mixed up, um, you know, where, you know, something he wrote as fiction, you know, made nothing to do with the murder, but, you know, something he may have dropped in there is now all of a sudden going to become a real memory in his head. Um, you know, so, like, if that's going to happen at the author level, I mean, what's going to happen to a reader? You know, it's, it's very just very cool like every every aspect about it i love it yeah and it's funny i was talking to a friend the other day and we were talking it's you know you mentioned that he talked about the website and wanted to do the documentary and stuff and i was talking to a friend the other day we were talking about blair witch and i was telling her i was like no one is going to be able to repeat that type of thing ever again like i think the closest thing was when paranormal activity came out and i think that came out at a time that was still kind of like, you know, obviously we had the internet and stuff, but it just wasn't, social media wasn't as big as it is now. But, um, 
you know, so it's kind of interesting, like that he could have made that happen with a book and, you know, left people wondering. Um, but I also love Jay and, and JD just kind of touched on it when you talked about memories and um, how, you know, our memories kind of get um, distorted in our head and we start remembering them a different way. And every time you tell us, he was talking about every time you tell a story, you know, something changes. And it's, it's funny. It's funny how we, how we do that and how the further we get away from, from things that have happened to us. So. Yeah. And I have in, in my own life, I have experience. I have stories that I've told multiple times and I, and I know that I know the way I'm telling them now is not how they happened. <laughs> like, exa- <laughs> like I know I, cause like they're, you know, when you're telling someone a story, especially when you're, you're face to face, you are you're reading off of them. You're playing off of them, off of you know the the facial cues that you're getting and 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 the, what people say. And I think subconsciously you start to then you start to rewrite the narrative based on the effect it's having. And and I could see that um, in Richard's case in in the writing. You know, as you're do as you're revising, and you're trying to get the flow and you're trying to get the quality of the writing up to a certain point it probably starts to meld those memories into something that are some something of a hybrid between what happened and what would make the best story. So it is a fascinating concept. And, and uh, I don't know if that's something I feel like I'm ready to challenge in my own writing at this point. I, I just curious what's going to happen a couple of years from now. Like are people going to be crawling around his old hometown, like taking pictures, you know, on some of these locations where the murders took place and, and things along those lines. Like how, how long will it take before this becomes cemented in, in other people as real? Um, it's just kind of cool that he, you know, he created something like this. I just, I, I love the fact that he was able to find something new. I'm, uh, I asked him if I could have a cameo in, in the documentary. <laughs> if he does it, <laughs> because, because, uh, I, I would love, I would love to be part, part of that. It's, it's very Blair witch like, and, uh, and that's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool, man. Uh, Richard, always a great guest, always a super interesting guy. Like you said, JD, been around for a long time. He, he knows he knows the industry well respected well liked and uh, always a pleasure to to have him on the show so that uh, that takes us to next week where uh, we have shall I say guests <laughs> yeah mu- multiple guests so we've got Peter and Jason Filardi, um producers writers directors that have been in the industry for for quite some time um, if you hop on IMDB and just research their names, they did uh, Flatliners, uh, the first one and the, the remake, um, you know, ton, tons of, of really, really cool movies. They've got a new series coming out um, based on Stephen King's short story, Jerusalem's Lot, uh, called Chapelweight. Um, we were lucky enough to get screeners of this, and, and, and it's phenomenal. Like, I, I shot them an email after I watched the first episode, and, like, I was totally blown away. I mean, they've got Adrian Brody in there playing the lead, um, and it just everything about it, like, the atmosphere is just incredible. Um, and you know, like I told him I'm stopping at episode one only because I, I can't watch this thing on my MacBook knowing I've got this home theater right down the hallway. Like I, I need to wait and, and watch it like in, in, you know, the way it was meant to be watched, but, um, incredible show. I mean, I love the way they pulled this together. Yeah. I'm, I'm on episode four and, uh, I, I went out and I bought a cable so that I could plug my laptop into my TV <laughs> and watch it on my TV. Cause it was too good. It was too good just to watch on the screen. And I think, uh, fans of of the witch, uh, fans of historical horror, um, fans of the haunting of Hill House, you're gonna love this. Uh, I can't wait to talk to the guys. Yeah, this is gonna be fun, and, and just you know, show aside, just hearing their process and how they actually got it to the screen. That, that's gonna be a fascinating conversation. Excellent. 
to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.